Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, our special guest is Zachary Grady, who is a writer-director whose productions span film, theater, and fiction podcasting. He created, wrote, and directed the audio series Gay Pride and Prejudice for Spotify and Gimlet Media. This appeared at the 2022 Tribeca Festival and was nominated for not one, but two 2023 Ambie Awards, including Podcast of the Year. His short film, Island Queen, played a series of festivals, including Newfest, Inside Out, and SF Film. His work in theater has been produced off-Broadway, regionally and internationally, including Topic and the upcoming God Save the Queer, which appeared in the 2022 Williamstown Theater Festival. Zachary's audio-driven productions, Travis and Dead Letter Office, utilize headphones on audiences, making him one of the very first creators to develop audio-immersive theater in New York City. We are going to focus on Zachary Grady's gay pride and prejudice during this episode but to learn all about his work you can head over in the show notes as this episode is discussing media representation i wanted to remind you that my course with shifting schools on media literacy and inclusion is on sale now and when you head over the show notes you can get a special promo code to take 25 dollars off that promo code is BABA, B-A-B-A, 25. Again, you'll find it in the show notes. Now, please welcome to the show, Zachary Grady. Gay Pride and Prejudice, the fiction podcast adaptation of Jane Austen's famous work, has been nominated for awards and quickly become a fan favorite, a favorite of mine as well. You are the writer, director, and creator of this gift that has such an extraordinary cast. I have to tell you, I didn't actually check the cast before I started listening. And then I was like, oh, that's Jesse Tyler Ferguson. That's Sherry Cola. And oh, is that Rosie O'Donnell? Yes, it's Rosie O'Donnell. Um, for our audience, folks in K-12 education who are inspiring the next generation of fiction podcast creators, writers, directors, I'm wondering if you can kind of reveal the curtain on how something like this comes to be. Um, you know, it's it was great for me to actually go and check out the cast because there's it's such a big team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would encourage folks, of course, the link to the show to learn more about it is in the show notes and make sure that you do go and look at the full production team. It's extraordinary. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, Your reaction is very similar to mine in getting that cast. I mean, it just was such a dream to work with some of the people that were involved in this. Um, But yes, how does it come to be? It is, um, there's so many moving parts, so many steps. I mean, it begins with an idea. It begins with... um, me picking up a copy of Pride and Prejudice and saying I'm going to adapt this, which is part like part of you has to be a little insane to decide you're going to do that because it's such an undertaking. Um, and so that's sort of the first hurdle is just making the choice to do it and then setting out to you have to break the story. You have to decide what is going to make your adaptation different. What's how much of the original material you're going to include. 
Um, and the way I started was I actually wrote what's known as a spec script. I, I just wrote a script. Um, it was originally a play, actually, years ago that this began as. Um, sometimes you take a piece out and you just pitch it as an idea, which is a route we could have gone with this. But I actually had an existing script when I brought on some friends to produce with me and we took it out to companies. Um, there was a whole pitching process that was involved. We pitched to many studios, uh, audio studios. And um, I, I can say, luckily, the fun thing was there was a bidding war. It was my first bidding war that's ever happened, um, which means more than one company was interested in it at the same time. We ended up choosing to go with Gimlet because I love the work they've done. They they have so many incredible scripted audio series. Um, and in many ways, like that's when the work really begins. That is, that's the whole business end of it. Um, and I, I mean, I could go on for another hour of all the steps that come after that, but then it, then you move into creative uh, planning and there's so many people involved and we spent two years uh, after we signed with Gimlet. Um, so there was all the time before, and then suddenly you're making it for real, it feels like. Mm -hmm. And there's still such a road of work from that point on. Um, it was really just five of us. And then it became, you know, I, I lost count of how many people became involved. Well, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of pitching the idea and having the concept kind of fully fleshed out, how 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 many details do you have to have in place just before you're actually getting to that point of saying hey i've got this idea um, yeah. who wants to help who wants to help give it a platform you know what what's really exciting about uh your audience being uh k through 12 educators is i've always said this thing but i've never really had an audience to say it to but it's i always look at it like a book report Truly. I, I I was the kid in school who loved a book report. I always, if there was a presentation available over writing an essay, I was always, would always choose presentation. And I think the realization is that's what pitching is. Pitching a show, whether it's a movie, a TV show, a scripted audio show, a play, you're, you're basically giving a book report on something that doesn't exist. And it's, that's when I sort of cracked that it's fun. It's like, I remember in book reports, you would tell who the characters were, were and you would talk about the story and you would give the theme. And all of those elements are literally what my job is when I'm pitching. And I always say that, um, like, I, I loved a book report and I sort of found a career that that's my job to, to give a book report on a book that doesn't exist. Um, so it's, it's two parts. You need all of those details and all of that information, but then you have to make it compelling. You know, we do a lot of our pitches on Zoom now, and it's a skill to, to grab someone's attention for 20 minutes and convince them that your idea is worth investing money in. Um, so I would say to educators and to students, like book reports are a life skill. <laughs> They're not just a thing you have to do. It's what I do for work.
<laughs> I love that framing and I love that, again, reminder of presentation through a virtual medium. I don't think that's disappearing. I think if anything, mm -hmm. for some of our students today, that's going to be more their reality. And you bring up also the budgeting piece, which I feel like folks might be saying, oh, is this interdisciplinary? Can we kind of tap into our mathematician mindset? To what extent do you as the creator, writer, producer also need to have that scale in mind of how much this is going to cost, where budgeting needs to be allocated? Is that something that's uh, kind of also heavy on your shoulders? I mean, that's where the director end of things comes into place. I mean, you're essentially, when you're making a series, it's it's in many ways, it's like a startup. You're basically saying like, we need this amount of money to make this thing and then it's going to be marketed. And you're asking a team of producers who have a year, they have an annual budget that they have to stay within. And you're asking them for a piece of that budget. And the way that you're earning their trust is by convincing them, you know what you're talking about and you know you know, I'm not coming in with spreadsheets and, and breakdowns of budgets, but I am, if a question comes up, if, 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 if there's something where we have to make a cut, we have to make a decision. It is absolutely something I have to be aware of. And it's, you know, I'll be the first to say math was not my strong suit in school. It was not the place that I excelled. However, like you have to understand what a budget is. You have to understand how much things actually cost. Um, and in asking, I don't, I don't like to say it's asking permission because that frames it as, you know, an interesting dynamic, but it's in saying that you can trust me with your budget. You have to prove that in more than just, I have the best story. It's, it, you have to understand the whole component of everyone's job that's involved and I say it's like a startup because it really feels like for a, a liminal amount of time, like 50 to 100 or more people are working on something for two years and then it's done. And, you know, I, I would love to switch gears and talk about the directorial responsibilities, skill sets, mindsets that go into that, because I know I will have some theater teachers who are tuning in and listening to this. And we are seeing a few more theater departments say, let's play around with, you know, this new emergent mode of the fiction podcast. And again, I think yours is a great example because you've got a, a big cast. Um, mm -hmm. So I think folks might even uh, underestimate, like you can have a cast just like you would for, you know, an mm -hmm. onstage theater production. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to direct in this medium and, and maybe um, some misconceptions that folks have or in what ways do you feel like it's actually quite similar to directing uh, film or theater? I mean, I think it's similar in the sense that you have to really understand the medium in, in the way that, I mean, first of all, hi to uh, theater educators, you are the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. I love you all so much. Um, and theater is where I come from and it's my first love and it will always be what made me an artist. Um, I think, um, and I fully got excited and lost track. Um, <laughs> um, oh, oh, with, with what the, the job of a director is, um, you know, it's, it, what's what's great about about writing and directing the same piece is I feel like I'm directing from day one where you know 
yes, I have 11 main characters in this piece, but that was such an undertaking. And so every step of the way, it was about clarity and how, and that's what I mean about knowing the medium is audio is very hard to make clear. And it is scary to say there's 12 people in this episode. Um, but, you know, the people I was working with had done a lot of these before, our main producer and she was very, she taught me a lot of rules. And it's the same thing where if you're directing a musical, you know the rules of how to stage a musical number. For directing this, it's, it's you know, if there's three voices in a scene, we have to cast them in a way that they're dis that you can distinguish who's who. Um, it's, it's about like placement of audio where our whole show, it's from the POV, the point of view of Bennett. So the microphone was always physically close to him and everyone came and went directionally around him for clarity's sake. Um, and all of these things are, are, are choices that we're making. And um, as the director, I, I, you know, I think it's just about getting everyone on the same page because everyone's skilled, the sound designers, the actors, they all can do incredible work. They just need some sort of glue to, to keep it all cohesive. Um, and we recorded remotely. No one recorded together. Um, I mean, we had a few actors record at the same time, but no one was in the same room. And in fact, a lot of the performances, I acted opposite them, and then my audio was deleted, and we mixed it. So part of directing was knowing what that actor did on Thursday and and keeping the pace and tone of that for the actor recording on Monday. We're wearing a lot of hats, but um, it was really, really fun. It was really, really fun to make. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I think I was imagining that everybody was in a studio, but that makes so much more sense. But also, you know, I and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the show was also nominated for an award for its sound design, which is spectacular and you know again you're right there is this additional need to make it really clear for the listener and something that i love about fictional podcasts is just how immersive that audio experience is like almost to the extent now you know many shows will have a warning like maybe don't listen to this while you're driving because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it can be kind of distracting um but even that having to go the extra step and think you know, you know the story in your mind, but the listener doesn't. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, how do you orient it so that, and there's so many details that come through. Um, and, and can you just talk a little bit more about what that means to work with the sound designer? And because mm. um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like I'm thinking even in episode one, there's a scene in the bar and you hear, you know, mm -hmm. like the ice clinking on the glass and a drink being poured. And it's so mm -hmm. hyper-specific. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that person's role? And, um, you know, again, I really appreciate you framing it early on about you're here in part because of your theater teachers, the skill oh, yeah. of the book report. So uh, for somebody who's thinking like sound design, maybe I'm interested mm. in that. Like I'm kind of imagining that's the young learner who just really is into like DIY, making stuff, playing around to see what is going to achieve a sound effect. Am I totally mm -hmm. wrong there or am I maybe onto no, something? No, you're not. I mean, it's the thing that's really fun is the more you work, I find the more you work with uh, specified designers in different mediums and different skills, 
it, there's there, there's this belief that they like have this magic uh, ability, but when you break it down, they're just people that have spent a lot of time and learned how to do it, and um, and have put in the like years, and they love it, and they've come to it from different ways. But um, Daniel Brunel was our lead sound designer, and there was a team of people. Um, if I started to list other people's names, I, I'll forget people, but um, there's so many, and everyone worked just for months and months on this. The first thing that Daniel did was um, re referencing the scene in the bar. He did what's called create rooms before we'd even recorded. So he read all 10 scripts for all 10 episodes and went through with his team and they marked what they were sort of like concerned about or what they were excited about. And they built uh, soundscapes of rooms. So, and they sent them to me to sort of be like, is this what you mean by a, a bar? Is this what you mean by a museum? Um, they're on a train. Do you, does it sound like this kind of a train? And that was sort of the first design element. Then we recorded with the actors knowing what that sound was going to be. For some scenes, we even... Uh, if actors needed to shout over music in a club, we, we would play music in their headphones and it changed the way they talked. Mm. But what was the most exciting for me was just Daniel would like go around his house and make, he, he would just record these sounds. He, he would, he was a Foley artist and there's not some magical library that costs a hundred thousand dollars that has all these like, yeah, there are ice glass clinkings, but like, I think Daniel just made most of those. And they're, that's why they're so specific because, um, you know, you can spend a lot of money and have these magic tools at you, but it's really about, and this is what I love about theater is like people put in the time and energy and they make um, these, these things on their own. And the DIY of it is sometimes more impressive than the thing that costs money. Um, and so I think talking to to uh, students and to educators, I mean, that's that's how it starts. It just starts like I don't know what Daniel's um, high school years were like. I know he's a musician originally, but I know he's just spent decades around microphones and knows what they're capable of. I also think, you know, an uh, an audio a fiction audio thing can cost a lot of money, but it's also, it can also be done pretty affordably. It could also be a school project. I mean, it's something that I would have, everyone has a an iPhone that records or some sort of recording device or schools have computers that have microphones built into them. I mean, just to exercise like the muscle of telling a story clearly, I think is a really fun project. And who cares if it doesn't sound like the nicest audio in the world. It's it's a what I think it's about is storytelling, about clarity, about character. And if you're if you don't have that, like I don't care what your audio sounds like. Um it's it's you know, it's you need all the pieces of the puzzle. And um luckily I think the sound designers I worked with were storytellers first. Their questions were always character-based. Like that's the dream. I, and again, listeners, if you have not yet listened to Gay Pride and Prejudice, you know, I'm trying to hype up the sound design <laughs> piece, but it's something that you have to experience. And it is so 
detail oriented and mm -hmm. it almost feels sort of meditative for me as a listener like mm. i find like after i listen to a show like yours i'm almost more tuned into the soundscape around me in the real world so to speak oh, I love like that yeah so th i think that's part of why i also really appreciate fiction podcasts i feel like they have elevated soundscaping in such a rich way um mm. and that that immersive experience it's sort of you know, I find I can listen to news podcasts or nonfiction shows like I can maybe be doing something simultaneously. But with fiction podcasts, I really just need to like sit mm. and enjoy. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you for explaining that. Uh, you know, I, I think you would probably agree representation in the media matters so much. And I think particularly in the moment that we're in queer joy matters a lot right now. There is a great review of your show in The Advocate. Listeners, I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. I'm wondering if you can speak to the responses you've received to this series and how it might perhaps be sort of uh, fueling what you, I, I know that you've just created this magnificent thing, so I feel guilty to say like, what's next? Um, oh. But uh, you're so creative that I'm sure you already have some thoughts on where you're going next. But is there a relationship on in terms of the feedback um, and then, you know, ideas you have for um, future projects? Absolutely. I mean, I just made something that I loved. Like, I I think hearing the positive feedback we've gotten, the awards we've been nominated for, um, I just look back and think, you know, it just, I, like I said, I made this on spec originally, and you don't do that unless you love something. You don't put in the years of work to write a script unless you you are like waking up itching to work on it. It's your passion project. It's um, and I think the 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 true privilege of of having a passion project come to the other side, like get made, get put out in the world. It's so hard and it's so rare. Um, I've just learned that if I'm, if I can't find a window into a project, if I don't love it, um, it's not going to be as great. It's not going to sparkle. And I, I'm as a gay man, I will always push queer stories. I will always be interested in those narratives. My protagonists are usually always gay because that's how I go through the world. Um, and I'm already working on a few other projects. I have a really fun one that we're actually currently on episode nine of 10 in the script. It's been almost a year of work and um, it's very fun. It has a gay protagonist. It's a murder mystery um, and it's really, really cool. Uh, but it's totally different than than um, the rom-com of Gay Pride and Prejudice. But, um, you know, the, the co-writer that I'm writing it with, we're just really exploring what we like and what our story is and the authenticity of us and I think yes representation it it matters and I think it it matters in the sense of um when real people are telling their real stories and not trying to emulate what they think is going to sell that's how people are heard and that's how people of any age feel seen and I think that that's you know I I Maybe I sound hopeful coming off the success of one show, but like I really only want to work on things that I feel seen in and that I see myself in the stories because I know that that's what makes them universal. 
Yeah, that's uh, such a great point. And um, listeners of the show might be familiar with what Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop calls uh, windows, doors, mm. uh, windows, mirrors, sliding glass doors, this idea that we see ourselves in narratives and we learn about others as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that's why, I mean, I think your show is great. And sometimes I hesitate to say it's also important, right? Because mm -hmm. I feel like as queer people, we shouldn't necessarily have the duty to do things that are quote unquote important like we also do need entertainment so i feel like the show is highly entertaining um but there is this piece of i think as there's a huge wave of folks who would like to erase our stories there is the danger of course that you know you're also erasing not just this opportunity you know i'm thinking of like you as a young person myself as a young person what a show like this would have meant mm -hmm. but narratives like these also humanize us right and so i think mm -hmm. this wave of anti-lgbtq rhetoric um you know if you are that person who has never heard of a story of a queer person before i feel like uh, you are more likely i think to dehumanize others so again i i i'm so excited to hear you're already at hard at work on another project um, i don't know if you want to say more about it or if you can say more about it or if there's any information out there um i mean i think what i'm allowed to say right now we haven't done an official announcement but it's um there's a, a great actor named actor and writer named Malik Pencholi, who you should have on the show. He's written two novels, um, and they're both uh, YA novels with queer protagonists. And he's uh, he's an actor. He's been on many TV shows. You'd probably recognize him. Um, but he's he had this incredible idea for a series uh, that is a murder mystery and. Uh, he's an actor in Gay Pride and Prejudice. I'm forgetting how far we go back. He plays James in Gay Pride and Prejudice. That's how we officially met. Um, and he's been working on an audio series. We It will probably come out, I, I would guess, by the end of this year at some point. But it's it's in line with the work he does. He, he pushes um, queer narratives. And he's very, uh, he's just such a joy to work with. And it's been so fun. Um, collaborating with him again but this time as both writers um and also you should definitely check out his books they're called the best at it and um Nikhil out loud if i'm getting that title correct if i'm not please correct me in the show notes um but yes i'm plugging my friend um and uh, it, our show will be out probably in the fall, but you should also have Malik on this show. <laughs> I, thank you for that. And I will be sure to link to those books in the show notes. Always nice, I think, like when, when you can shout out our collaborator. So mm -hmm. thanks for, for hinting to that. Um, the Guardian has also picked your show as one of their favorite favorites of the week. Again, I'll, I'll link to the, the brief summary that they posted and they give it praise for you not tying your adaptation too tightly to Austin's original work. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that process of adaptation and which decisions you had to make in your three separate roles. Um, and if, you know, when you received that praise from the Guardian, if you kind of felt like, great, they were understanding what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, yes, I did feel great that they they said that. Um, oh, uh, the the whole thing about adapting. I'm actually also 
of in the very early stages of another adaptation right now. So I'm freshly re-experiencing the like joy and horror of adapting. Um, what I've always called it is extracting the DNA of the story, which might sound very scientific, but hear me out. What, what, what I did with Pride and Prejudice was I, I kept asking the question, what did this mean to the reader at the time that it was written? So all these little details might not mean anything today. Like, like getting married for money means something very different today than it did in 1813 when the book was published. So I always, I always say in an adaptation, you're recreating a feeling more than you're recreating a story. So I was, I wrote an outline that was probably 30 something pages long originally that was just beat by beat the book modernized. And then it's just years of, of revising that and, and polishing that. And I mean, my copy of Pride and Prejudice is basically falling apart. I could quote it to you. I really feel like I've taken the DNA out of it. I understand the the code of it, if you will, and then I can rewrite it. Um, and I think until you you get underneath, it's like I I, don't, I I live in New York City. I don't own a car, so I feel weird giving this metaphor. But like it's like they say, like you lift the hood of a car to understand how it works, and that's what it feels like when when you're in the early stages of adapting. Um, it gets to a point where you then have a script and you then just let it become its own thing. I reached a point where I said, I'm not going to read the book again. I'm not going to watch any film adaptation. I'm not going to read any literary criticism on it again. I've done that. Now I need to be free. And then that's like another year of not consulting the original source material, just making your story good. Um, because not everyone knows it. It has to stand on its own. So that's, it's all wearing all hats. You're doing that. Um, I even said to some producers, there was one producer on the team. She didn't know Pride and Prejudice. And I said, oh my God, don't watch anything. Don't know the story. Just please be the voice of um, someone fresh to this. And so I think that collaborative effort of, um, knowing that there are different listeners who are going to come to this with their own knowledge or lack of knowledge. Uh, you know, it's nice to hear that it did, we like, we didn't tie ourselves too closely to me sounds like we honored the original, but made it approachable to new people. It's not insider baseball. It's, it's its own story. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I would say listeners, if you even didn't like Jane Austen's original work. And, and sorry, thank you for not like shrieking in horror to that uh, possibility. But <laughs> no. it, it is your your show is so unique. It's such a fresh take um, on Austen's work. And again, I wanted to have you on this show because it's, I think, a really great kind of nudge to teachers. What a great experiment to do with students, right? You are studying a work and I loved your framing of what's the DNA of this? Hmm. You know, if we were going to modernize or we were going to switch genres, uh, your take on what's maybe the essential feeling that your reader, hmm. listener, viewer needs to, to leave with. I think that's such a great conversation to have. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you talked about reaching that point of not wanting to reread or, or watch any other adaptations. I'm wondering 
if there are other works in the realm of uh, fiction podcasts that have kind of either they're inspirational to you or you've just enjoyed them because this is again another one of those mediums that I think you know educators if you've got students who maybe I don't know they kind of are quote-unquote reluctant readers I think the world of fiction podcasts um, I love that you pointed out you opted to go with Gimlet they've created what's been one of my favorite shows for younger mm -hmm. listeners Two Princes so I'm just wondering if there's any other shows that you have found inspirational or um, you would recommend if, if folks listen to your show and they want to get more immersed in the world of fiction podcasts. Do you have thoughts? I mean, I was, it's so funny because I was going to recommend the two princes <laughs> because the, the, that show is uh, honestly, it's partly one of the main reasons I wanted to go with Gimlet because I thought that show was so uh, strong and it's queer. And um, I felt uh, like they would take great care of our piece. So first of all, if you, haven't listened to the two princes um it's ya friendly and it is it's all i think it's all friendly for all ages and it's fantastic it's three episodes it's three seasons the final season's a musical season it's so great um and i mean there's so many i mean it's there's so many incredible fiction podcasts out there there's some uh independent uh people out there that are making uh incredible incredible shows there's a really fun show i recently listened to that was made by an indie uh creator um tamara oh my god i'm forgetting tamara's last name um it's called has the funniest title it's called jesus pancake it's not what you expect it to be about at all um but it's this really fun fast-paced uh story uh about a I kind of don't want to give anything away. Okay. I just think like it's it's definitely um it, it is a it's a really fun wild ride and I sort of pressed play being like, "Huh?" and then I was like, "Oh, I'm on board for whatever this show is going to be." Um it's really really fun and the writer plays the main role and she independently made the whole thing and um I don't know if it's I think there might be profanity in it just saying out loud um in case younger listeners want to listen but um I think it's a great example of somebody having an idea a very specific idea making the show and putting it out in the world uh as the writer director actor um it's very inspiring oh I will look out for that and I I almost appreciate you not giving too much details because when you <laughs> said it's not what you expect the name yeah. Jesus Pancake. I have like no expectations. I can't even imagine what that's going to be about. So that'll be my weekend listening. Thank you so yeah. much for that. It is not a biblical show by any means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, if you have other thoughts on other fiction podcasts that you have enjoyed, I'd love to hear from you. I also, I'm really glad we briefly touched on The Two Princes. I have a listener guide if uh, as an educator, you'd like to bring that show in. Um, I've created a little free listening party, so it's mm. it's great for if friends want to listen across um, geographical borders. I think that's a, a great show. And again, I am just so happy that um, we've we've had you on to remind us about all the educational, like creative, critical thinking, potential possibilities with fiction podcasts. And I just want to reiterate again, I I really appreciate you creating this gift that 
it's just it really did make me feel such a sense of pride and enjoyment so thank you so much for coming on this show to share more about the behind the scenes thank you so much for having me i love this show and i'm so happy to be on it Thanks again for tuning in to Be a Better Ally during Pride Month. It is especially important to be supporting creators from the LGBTQ plus community. So please do head over to the show notes, check out Gay Pride and Prejudice, and be sure to leave it a review and rating. See y'all again next week.